Welcome to the Time Machine Talk Show. Here's your host, Miss Ziegler. Hey, 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 AP Scholars. This is Miss Ziegler here with the Time Machine Talk Show for this week. This week, we are going to be in your textbook on page 315 to 343 and 365 to 394. So that is Ways of the World Textbook Online by Robert Strayer. Okay, so this podcast is going to cover the first couple reading questions. I'm going to skip ahead to page 320. So you need to read the first five pages on your own. The first five pages answer the first question of your reading question. Okay, so starting on page 320, we're looking for what made silk such a highly desired commodity across Eurasia. That is your second reading question. Elite Chinese women and their men as well also furnished part of the demand for those luxurious fabrics, which marked their high status. So too did Chinese officials who required high quantities of silk to exchange for much needed horses and to buy off barbarian invaders from the north. Beyond China, women in many cultures ardently sought Chinese silk for its comfort and its value as a fashion statement. The demand for silk, as well as for cotton textiles from India, was so great in the Roman Empire that various Roman writers were appalled at the drain of resources that it represented. They also were outraged at the moral impact of wearing revealing silk garments. I can see clothes of silk, lamented Seneca the Younger in the first century CE. If materials that do not hide the body, nor even one's decency, can be called clothes. Wretched flocks of mines labor so that the adulteress may be visible through her thin dress, so that her husband has no more acquaintance than any outsider or foreigner with his wife's body. So that basically they think that the silk is too revealing. By the 6th century CE, the knowledge and the technology for producing raw silk had spread beyond China. An old Chinese story attributes it to a Chinese princess who smuggled out silkworms in her turban when she was married off to a Central Asian ruler. In a European version of the tale, Christian monks living in China did the deed by hiding some silkworms in a bamboo cane an act of industrial espionage that allowed an independent silk-producing and silk-weaving industry to take hold in the Byzantine Empire. However it happened, Korean, Japanese, Indians, and Persians likewise learned how to produce this precious fabric. So for the answer for your question too, you can put down that it was such a high commodity because people liked to have it for social status and to show their wealth, even in China. You could also put down that cotton in India was a high commodity, as uh, many Europeans in Rome wanted that as well. Okay, let's continue reading. It says, as the supply of silk increased, its many varieties circulated even more extensively across Afro-Eurasia trade routes. Afro-Eurasia, you will see a lot on the AP exam. It simply means Africa, Asia, and Europe. In Central Asia, silk was used as currency and as a means of accumulating wealth. In both China and the Byzantine Empire, silk became a symbol of high status and governments passed laws that restricted silk clothing to members of the elite. 
Furthermore, silk became associated with the sacred in the expanding world religions of Buddhism and Christianity. Chinese Buddhist pilgrims who made their way to India seeking religious texts and relics took with them large quantities of silk as gifts to the monasteries they visited. Buddhist monks in China received purple silk robes from Tang Dynasty emperors as a sign of high honor. In the world of Christendom, silk wall hangings, altar covers, and vestments became highly prestigious signs of devotion and piety. Because no independent silk industry developed in the Western Europe until the 12th century CE, a considerable market developed for silks imported from the Islamic world. Ironically, the, the splendor of Christian churches depended in part on Islamic trading networks and on silk manufactured in the Muslim world. Some of those silks were even inscribed with passages in Arabic for the Quran, unbeknownst to their European buyers. By the 12th century, the West African king of Ghana was wearing silk, and that fabric circulated in Egypt, Ethiopia, and along the East African coast as well. So also for question two, you can write down that it was important in religions, such as Buddhism and Christianity. And I would even put an example so that you have that there if you're asked this question on a reading quiz. You can put down uh, that it was given as gifts to, in monasteries when Buddhist monks traveled, and it was used for wall hangings in Christianity. Okay, your next question is, what were the major economic, social, and cultural consequences of the Silk Road commerce? So let's keep reading. It says, compared to contemporary global commerce, the volume of trade on the Silk Roads was modest, and its focus on luxury goods limited its direct impact on most people. Nonetheless, it had important economic and social consequences. Peasants in the Yangtze River Delta of southern China sometimes gave up the cultivation of food crops, choosing to focus instead on producing silk, paper, porcelain, lacquerware, or iron tools much of which was dis destined for the markets of the Silk Road. In this way, the impact of long-distance trade trickled down to affect the lives of ordinary farmers. Furthermore, favorably placed individuals could benefit immensely from long-distance trade. The 12th century Persian merchant, Ramshant, made a personal fortune from his long-distance trading business and with his profits purchased an enormously expensive silk covering for the Kaaba, the central shrine of Islam in Mecca. So you can put down that economically it affected small farmers in that they started to produce more items to sell on the Silk Road, such as silk, paper, porcelain, lacquerware, and iron, instead of producing food. You can also put down that merchants that did long-distance trade made a lot of money and sometimes would get quite wealthy. So it stimulated the economy in some places and it stifled the social life in some places because if you're growing things to sell on the Silk Road or you're making things and producing things to sell on the Silk Road versus growing food, that could be a problem in the long run. Okay, on the next page we're going to go on to cultures in transit and your next question is what accounted for the spread of Buddhism along the Silk Road? More important even than the economic impact of the Silk Roads was their role as a conduit of culture. Conduit means like to make a way for something. So this was just another way for culture to spread. 
Buddhism in particular, a cultural product of Indian civilization, spread widely throughout Central and East Asia, owing much to the activities of merchants along the Silk Road. From its beginnings in India during the 6th century BCE, Buddhism had appealed to merchants who preferred its universal message to that all of Brahmin-dominated Hinduism that privileged the higher caste. Indian traders and Buddhist monks, sometimes supported by rulers such as Ashoka, brought the new religion to the trans-Eurasian trade routes. To the west, Persian Zoroastrianism largely blocked the spread of Buddhism, but in the oasis cities in Central Asia, such as Merv, Samarkand, Khotan, Danang, Buddhism quickly took hold. By the 1st century BCE, many of the inhabitants of these towns had converted to Buddhism, and foreign merchant communities soon introduced it to northern China as well. Conversion to Buddhism in the oasis cities was a voluntary process, without the pressure of conquest or foreign rule. Dependent on long-distance trade, the inhabitants and rulers of those sophisticated and prosperous cities found in Buddhism a link to the larger, wealthy, and prestigious civilization in India. Well-to-do Buddhist merchants could earn religious merit by building monasteries and supporting monks. The monasteries, in turn, provided convenient and culturally familiar places of rest and resupply for merchants, making the long and arduous uh, trek across Central Asia. Many of these cities became cosmopolitan centers of learning and commerce. Scholars have found thousands of Buddhist texts in the city of Dongang, where several branches of Silk Roads joined to enter western China together with hundreds of keg temples lavishly decorated with murals and statues. Outside of the oasis communities, Buddhism progressed only slowly among pastoral peoples of Central Asia. So let's first talk about the oasis communities. In your question, it says, what accounted for the spread of Buddhism along the Silk Road? That last paragraph we just read talked about how it spread in the oasis communities. So check that out and look for some clues. So the first part it talks about is that well-to-do Buddhist merchants could earn religious merit. It also talked about how they were allowed to do this on their own will. They weren't forced by a foreign ruler. So that's important. It was their choice. And then you can say that um, by building monasteries, it really looked good for them um, because they were, they were a part of a larger civilization in India. And when they're on the outskirts in these oasis towns, they're not really that close to India. And so some of them might feel like they're a little bit like outsiders, but this kind of connects them. Okay, so you could put that down as well. And you could put that many lavish cave temples and murals and statues line the Silk Road from these Buddhist merchants who would put them up. All right, let's go on and we're going to talk about the pastoral peoples now. So it says, the absence of a written language was an obstacle to the penetration of a highly literate religion, and their nomadic ways made the founding of monasteries so important to Buddhism quite difficult. But as pastoralists became involved in long-distance trade or came to rule settled agricultural peoples, Buddhism seemed more attractive. The nomadic Ji people, who controlled much of northern China after the collapse of the Han Dynasty, are a case in point. Their ruler in the early 4th century CE, Shi Li, became acquainted with a Buddhist monk 
called Futudnang, who had traveled widely on the Silk Roads. The monk's reputation as a miracle worker, a rainmaker, and a fortune teller, and his skills as a military strategist cemented a personal relationship with Shili and led to the conversions of thousands and the construction of hundreds of Buddhist temples. In China itself, Buddhism remained for many centuries a religion of foreign merchants or foreign rulers. Only slowly did it become popular among the Chinese themselves, a process examined more closely in chapter 8. So for the pastoral people, you need to write down that because they moved around so much, the founding of monasteries really was hard to do because they're not going to find a monastery and then like move from it and then have to build another one. But you can put down in some cases it became attractive to the nomadic people and then you can put the example that we just talked about. Once you're done with that, let's keep reading. And it says, as Buddhism spread across the Silk Roads from India to Central Asia, China, and beyond, it also changed. The original faith had shunned the material world, but Buddhist monasteries in the rich oasis towns of the Silk Road found themselves very much involved in secular affairs. Secular just means worldly. Some of them became quite wealthy, receiving gifts from well-to-do merchants, artisans, and local rulers. The begging bowls of the monks became a symbol rather than a daily activity. Sculptures and murals in the monasteries depicted mu musicians and acrobats, women applying makeup, and even drinking parties. Doctrines changed as well. It was, it was the more devotional Mayana form of Buddhism, featuring the Buddha as a deity, numerous bodhisattvas, an emphasis on compassion and the possibility of earning merit that flourished on the Silk Road, rather than the more austere psychological teaching of the original Buddha. So bodhisattvas uh, is a person who is able to reach nirvana, but delays to do that so that he, he can um, help save other suffering human beings. The last part of that paragraph says, Moreover, Buddhism picked up elements of other cultures, which in transit on the Silk Road. In the area northwest of India that had been influenced by the invasion of Alexander the Great, statues of Buddha revealed distinctly Greek influences. The Greco-Roman mythological creatures of Heracles and the son of Zeus and associated with great strength, courage, masculinity, and sexual prowess was used to represent Verapani, one of the divine protectors of Buddha. In similar ways, the many god or the gods of many peoples along the Silk Road were incorporated into Buddhist practices as Buddhavatvas. This is a great example of syncretism. And syncretism is basically like the merging of religions or um, uh, cultures to form something new and to make new parts of the religion. So put that down as an example of syncretism and then give yourself some bullet points. Like you can put down that Greco-Roman influence uh, influenced Buddhism in the areas where Alexander the Great had conquered. You can put down that in some parts Buddhism was no longer about suffering and it was no longer shunning the material world because Water merchants and artisans and local rulers were donating large amounts of items to these monks. And 
they apparently liked it and they accepted it and they were okay with it. So those two things are kind of uh, ideas of syncretism and how Buddhism changes on the Silk Road. So if you're ever asked a change of the Silk Road, this would be a good one. You can talk about how as Buddhism spread, it changed with the culture. You can use your vocab word syncretism. You can use these examples of how it changed. You can talk about what it was before it left India, which was you know all about suffering and reaching nirvana because you've suffered and then how it changes as it goes so that would be great for a short answer question we might actually ask you that right because remember in the short answer questions you have to explain the change by explaining how it was before it changed how it was after it changed and why it happens so why does this happen well, it's influences from other cultures that are pushing in on this religion and kind of making it their own. Okay, our next question is about uh, what was the impact of disease along the Silk Road? So we're going to go on to the section that says disease and transit. It says beyond goods and cultures, diseases too traveled the trade routes of Eurasia and were devastating consequences. Each of the major population centers of Afro-Eurasia world had developed characteristic disease patterns, mechanisms for dealing with them, and in some cases, immunity to them. But when contact among human communities occurred, people were exposed to unfamiliar diseases for which they had little immunity or few effective methods of coping. An early example involved the Greek city-state of Athens, which in 430 to 429 BCE was suddenly afflicted by a new and still unidentified infectious disease that had entered Greece via seaborne trade from Egypt killing perhaps 25% of its army and permanently weakening the city-state. Even more widespread diseases affected the Roman Empire and the Han Dynasty, China, as the Silk Roads promoted contact all across Eurasia. Smallpox and measles devastated the population of both empires, contributing to their political collapse. Paradoxically, these disasters may well have strengthened the appeal of Christianity in Europe and Buddhism in China, for both of them offered a compassion in the face of immense suffering. So already you have some uh, answers to put down with your question with what impact did the disease make on the Silk Road. You can put down that it drew people to Christianity and to Buddhism because they wanted to have something that offered compassion in the face of suffering. All right, on page 324, we'll continue. It says, again in the period between 534 and 750 CE, intermittent outbreaks of bubonic plague ravaged the coastal areas of the Mediterranean Sea as the black rats that carried the disease arrived via the seaborne trade with India, where they originally lived. What followed was catastrophic. Constantinople, the city capital city of the Byzantine Empire lost thousands of people per day during a 40-day period in 534 CE. According to a contemporary historian, disease played an important role in preventing Byzantium from integrating Italy into its version of a renewed Roman Empire encompassing the Mediterranean basin. The repeated reoccurrence of the disease over the next several centuries also weakened the ability of Christendom to resist Muslim armies from Arabia in the 7th century CE. The most well-known dissemination of disease was associated with the Mongol Empire, which briefly unified much of the Eurasian landmass during the 13th and 14th century CE. That era of intensified interaction facilitated the spread of the Black Death. 
identified variously with the bubonic plague, anthrax, or a package of epidemic diseases from China to Europe. Its consequences were enormous. Between 1346 and 1348, up to half of the population of Europe perished from the plague. A dead man, wrote the Italian writer Boccaccio, was then a, of no more account than a dead goat. Despite the terrible human toll, some among the living benefited. Tenant farmers and urban workers, now in short supply, could demand higher wages or better terms. Some land-owning nobles, on the other hand, were badly hurt as the price of their grains dropped and the demands of their dependents grew. So you can put down one example is the Black Death. It is believed that 30 to 60% of Europe's population was killed by the Black Death. So that was a big epidemic. You can also put down that as a result of that, tenant farmers and urban workers were in short supply, so they could demand higher wages and better terms. This is going to lead to the end of feudalism. We will get into that more when we get to that point. The next paragraph then says, In the long run of world history, the exchange of world of diseases gave Europeans a certain advantage when they confronted the people of the Western Hemisphere after 1500. Exposure over time had provided them with some degree of immunity to Eurasian diseases. In the Americas, however, the absence of domesticated animals, the less intense interaction among major centers of population, and isolation from the Eastern Hemisphere ensured that native people had little defense against the disease of Europe and Africa. Thus, when their societies were suddenly confronted by Europeans and Africans from across the Atlantic, they perished in appalling numbers. Such was the long-term outcome of the very different histories of the two hemispheres. And we'll talk about that more as we get to it as well. And that concludes this episode of the Time Machine Talk Show. Thank you for listening. And as always, if you have any questions, I'm available in the Learning Commons on a daily basis and also after school from 4 to 5. So stop by. I'd love to see you.